So page 898, please. John 12, verses 1 to 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Fantastic. Thank you, Anna. And uh, we, don't, we don't mind at all. Wow, that's great. Thanks. A uh, little bit of um, gurgling and crying from babies. I actually quite like it. I hope it's not too off-putting, but we are family. If they get really noisy, then just for your sakes, um, crashes upstairs. But let's be relaxed about that. Let me pray, and then let's jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for drawing us together as a precious family. Thank you that you love us, that you sent your son for us. Thank you that you're so committed to your own glory through us, which is how we're going to be most fulfilled and joyful. And would you get glory from us now as we humble ourselves and sit under your perfect, life-changing, eternity-changing word. We pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. Humble us, make us receptive, help us to focus. We, we pray you do these things for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So a woman's husband was lying in hospital recovering from an illness, and one day when she was visiting him, he, he motioned her to come nearer. And as she sat by him, he whispered, his eyes filling with tears, Ah, oh dear, you've, you've been with me through all the bad times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. Uh, when my business failed, you were there. When I got shot, you were by my side. When we lost the house, you were right there. When my health started failing, you were still by my side. You know what? What, dear? She asked gently as her heart began to fill with warmth. I think you're bad luck. <laughs> um, this morning, we're thinking about devotion and, and also betrayal. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, and, and we have that all the time at Redeemer, and I love it, you are super welcome. Uh, maybe you just wandered in out of curiosity or got dragged along by a friend or, or came to support a family member or something like that. It's great to have you here. And I hope you'll be stimulated and, and given hope and maybe challenged as you come into contact with the Bible in the coming minutes on these subjects of devotion and betrayal. But if you're here and you would count yourself as a believer, then if you're anything like me, you'll know that devotion to Jesus, real devotion to Jesus, 
is really, really hard. A lot easier said than done. I can say nice things about devotion now, and we can all nod and say amen. And, but when it comes to the crunch, Monday morning, it's really hard to be deeply devoted to Jesus. We know the theory. We know the theology. But when it gets down to it, well, you know, staying up late, too late at night to do more work or have more fun is just so tempting. And then it's so hard to get up early the next morning. We're knackered when we do get up. And that deep time alone with Jesus that should be the first and most important thing every single day just doesn't really happen. Or, or I know I could have or, or have maybe that spiritual gift of healing or prophecy or whatever else it might be and thus ministering to Jesus' people in some wonderful ways. But stepping out and exercising it would just be awkward or embarrassing or draining. And so I just end up kind of sitting on it and it sort of goes dormant. Um, or I know in theory, theologically, God's word pushes me to giving maybe at least 10% of my income back to support what's being done for Jesus in this city so that more people can be devoted to him and save from eternal death for eternal life. But, well, you know, just things are kind of tight right now. I'm saving hard for that particular thing, and my heart's kind of set on that nice holiday later this year that I really need, and so, sorry, Jesus. Well, I, I know that being devoted to his people, specifically his people in Redeemer Babies and Redeemer Tots and Redeemer Kids, is so badly needed. We had 40 kids here last week. Isn't that amazing? It's our greatest and most strategic mission field, not even on our doorstep, like in our house, our kids. And, and I, I know in theory that serving God's people in Redeemer Babies and Redeemer Tots and all the rest is one of the most powerful strategic ways I could be devoted to Jesus. And yet, you know, that's not my gifting, and I don't have any experience of teaching Sunday school, and surely somebody else can fill in. And I'm not giving these examples to make us feel bad. Like, where do you think I get these examples from? myself, my own temptations. And the point of all of this is just to, to be honest and say being devoted to Jesus when it comes down to it is really hard. Much easier said than done. And that raises the question, so what's going to help us? Where are we going to get some motivation from? What, what can encourage us? And, and the key isn't just hearing amazing examples of devotion to him to kind of pump us up. Um, you know, the key is things like dwelling in his word to change us from the inside and, and keeping in step with the spirit to empower us and focusing on Jesus himself because the better we get to know him, the more we won't be able to help but be devoted to him. But amazing examples of devotion to him to, well, pump us up can really help. And that's what John's giving us in the first few verses of today's passage. Let's look at um, this, this example of devotion to Jesus John wants to put in front of us because it carries a lot of insights about what devotion to Jesus actually looks like and, and how it's motivated. And so let's jump in, reading again from verse 1. Six days before the Passover, we there, John 12, 1 to 11, whatever the page number was. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Just a quick pause. Um, if we'd been reading from the end of chapter 11, you would have noticed a particular word sort of coming back at you again and again. And that's now the third time in four verses John has mentioned the Passover. So chapter 11, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many of them went up from the country to Jerusalem before the, uh, for the Passover to purify themselves. Then in chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover. So why is he banging on about the Passover so much? And the reason is, of course, that Jesus is, to quote John all the way back in chapter 1, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
In other words, the fulfillment of the sacrificial Passover lamb who will die in God's perfect and symbolic timing at the Passover. Now, the whole point of the Passover lamb was that it was sacrificed in God's people's place to pay for their sin and thus purify them so God could accept them, which is precisely Jesus' mission. It's why he came to earth. So in verse 1, John is just signaling to us what we're, who we're looking at is the human ultimate Passover lamb. And he's starting the final countdown to Jesus' final Passover at which he's going to die. Six days to go and counting. One quick final thing to notice. As this countdown begins, Jesus is moving steadily closer and closer to his death in Jerusalem. He was in Ephraim, about 12 miles outside of Jerusalem, if you remember from 50, verse 54 last week. Uh, now he moves to Bethany, couple of, just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. Next week, we're going to see him enter it. So do you feel the tension like ramping up, the clock's ticking, the countdown's begun. He's edging closer and closer and closer. It's, it's powerful, powerful writing, isn't it? Verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Of course she did. If you know anything about Martha from the Gospels, that's where you'd expect her to be. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now the Greek word for dinner there in verse 2 re refers to the main meal of the day, which would have been held in the evening. And the fact they're reclining indicates this wasn't any old dinner. This is a grand feast with Jesus as the guest of honor. And so we can picture the, the, the guests reclining on their couches around a low table. So um, we know historically that their, their heads would have been up close towards the table, their feet pointing away on these low couches. They would have been raised on one elbow and eating with the other hand. Just picture it in your mind's eye. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And we just need to pause again briefly and try and wrap our heads around the, the shock of verse 3. wonder how many surprises you did spot during the reading. Well, there's two or three whoppers in this verse alone. And the first is the ointment. So nard, it's known as spike nard today, got a couple of other names as well. It's an amber-colored liquid, it's an oil. It's derived only from plants growing in the Himalayas. Um, it was available only from northern India at this time, so it had to be imported very, very long distance. And there was a pound of this stuff, Roman pound equivalent to about 11 and a half ounces in our measurements today. And we're going to find out in verse 5 what Mary's holding is worth 500 denarii. In today's money, that is an average year's wages, or slightly above average. In UK 2019, average year's wages was 36,000 pounds. 36K she's holding in her hand. So picture the scene. Jesus is on his couch. There we go. Around the table. And there's this great party going on, and, and there's laughter and talking. There's probably music in the background, and um, people enjoying wine and, and, and luxurious food. And then everyone stops talking. And the laughter dies away, and the sprinkle tet in the corner sort of fade. Because Mary has appeared with this jar, 11 and a half ounces, which is what I got here. That's how much that is, of liquid worth 36,000 pounds. And everyone's watching as she proceeds to pour it over Jesus. Would have been quite a bit on his hair. The other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, tell us that uh, it, it was more than just his feet she anointed. 
and then the majority, presumably, from the account on his feet. Can you, can you picture that happening? And there are gasps around the room as it gradually dawns on people what it is that she has poured over Jesus. And yet they ain't seen nothing yet because what she does next is arguably as shocking. She lets down her hair and begins to wipe Jesus' feet with it. Now in that culture, Jewish women just did not let down their hair. It, n it never happened. The, the first time a man would see another woman's hair let down would probably be if he was marrying her on their wedding night. I was trying to think of what the equivalent would be in our culture, you know, in terms of the shock and the, and the taboo that she's breaking there. And it might be something like, imagine you get invited to a super posh dinner party, quite a big one, you know, 15 people in someone's big mansion, and, and everyone's dressed up, it's black tie, and uh, the caterers have been got in, string quartets playing in the corner. It's going to be a night you'll remember for years and years to come. And, and, the, and the, the, the candles are on the table and the wine glasses and... And then in the middle of it, one of the women sitting around the table takes off her shirt, leaving just her underwear underneath. Can you imagine the embarrassment, the weirdness, like the, the shock, how the, all the conversation would stop? Well, without any hint in this passage of sexual overtones, um, that is maybe the equivalent of what Mary does here, just in terms of how socially inappropriate it was. And then as if things couldn't get any more shocking or bizarre, she actually starts to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. Now in that culture, again, got to understand the context, attending to someone's feet was a job only for the very lowest of the low. Uh, people's feet were often gross given the dirt and the dust and open sandals and animal dung in the streets. And to wash them with a towel was bad enough, reserved for the lowest of the servants. And some poor servant had already had to do that for Jesus when he first came into the house. But then to wipe his feet with her hair. And then, in the sudden deafening silence, as people stared, end of verse 5, the house gets filled with the fragrance of the ointment. And all of that adds up to the first of two simple insights for us from this passage about devotion. The first being this. Wholehearted devotion. Wholehearted devotion. And there are several different aspects of Mary's act that teach us things about it. So first, her act was one of humility. Anointing and then wiping Jesus' feet was to assume a posture of profound subservience. And that's fitting because true devotion to Jesus begins with acknowledging him as our Lord. Yes, he's our brother. Yes, he's our comforter. But we, we come to him First and foremost, with him as our, our, our king, our master, our lord, before whom we have no rights. We're, what a privilege it is to get to minister to his feet. His feet is where our devotion to him begins. And that's why it's good sometimes to physically kneel. When you pray sometimes, I often kneel to pray in my quiet times. I hope we all do. Uh, second, her act was one of perceptiveness. In verse 7, which we'll come to in a sec, Jesus says to Judas, who's hassling her, he says, leave her alone that she may, she may keep it for the day of my burial. I think a better translation might be, as you may have a footnote, leave her alone, she intended to keep it for the day of my burial. In other words, Mary has sensed 
somehow, maybe just by listening more closely to Jesus' teaching than most other people had to this point, that the day of his death is approaching. And it's because of his imminent death she's doing this. She's kind of anointing him for burial in advance. Maybe she was sobbing for him as she did it because she knew the meaning of what she was doing and she loved him so much. Her act is prophetic. It's done in the shadow of the cross. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, Paul writes, I resolve to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. And so is it his death that's the center of my life? Is it his death upon which I've staked my eternity? Is it his death for which I thank his father every single day and which shapes how I live my life, sacrificial service of others? Um, Third, her act was one of being criticized. And as, again, we'll see in a minute, what she did did not go down well with some of the other guests and one in particular. We know from the other gospels that all of the disciples were pretty outraged, but one in particular, the ringleader, um, got really angry, as, we saw in the, as we'll see in this account. And that's just a heads up for us. That is what we can expect, folks, when we're fully devoted to Jesus. It will mean doing things like Mary did that others are really going to disapprove of and oppose and get angry about. And so, you know, just as you pour in your lives, as you pour, just a heads up to expect that. Expect the reaction that Mary got. Um, fourth, just out of five, her act was one of extravagance. 36K gone in a few seconds. That's a pretty, pretty quick way to blow 36,000 pounds, isn't it? In a few seconds, gone. One commentator writes this, Jesus merits the richest treasures of our self-giving. It is possible to become so circumspect and balanced in our Christian profession that we lose touch with the extravagance of a heart like Mary's. There may sometimes be a, quote, time to keep, but there is also a time to, quote, throw away, Ecclesiastes 3.6, for the glory and honor of him who is worthy of all of our love and devotion. So guys, may God deliver this church from slipping into uh, that kind of Christianity, which, to quote that commentator, is so circumspect and balanced that we lose touch with the extravagance of a heart like Mary's. Now, this might not sound right to some people, but we mustn't be cautious. We mustn't be sensible. We mustn't be careful. There is a place for those things, but Mary's act here is none of those things. It doesn't make any sense, and yet it's right. She just did it because it's right. And sometimes we need to be passionate and extreme in our devotion to Jesus and trust that he'll honor it to make stunning things happen. He's sovereign. He can do that. Mustn't always just play it safe. And will that be financially for us? Well, maybe that's exactly what it meant for her. But whatever form it takes, authentic devotion to Jesus is sometimes wildly extravagant. And fifth and finally, her act was one of pervasiveness. I, l I love that phrase. Everyone's in like shock, horror, and awkward, and some people are blushing, and others are muttering angrily. And, and, and while you can still kind of hear a pin drop in the silence, what does it say? The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Acts of true devotion to Jesus, they changed the atmosphere around where they've happened, around the where they've been performed. When people start making humble, cross-inspired, extravagant acts of devotion to Jesus in any given church, that church cannot stay the same. The fragrance of the perfume is going to fill the house. 
uh, one commentator writes, sincere devotion to Jesus has a capacity to touch and bless other, others' lives, a capacity which is missing from acts of merely legalistic piety. Others will be blessed when we serve Jesus, perhaps, and in, as in Mary's case, far beyond our dreams. And I love that because in, in some of the other accounts, it's included Jesus' comment that for the rest of time, whenever the gospel is preached, people are going to remember she did that. And even in our account, we don't need that comment to, to see the same point. Because I bet she had no idea, as she was pouring out that perfume, that she was in fact blessing a couple of hundred people, 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away, in a country she'd never heard of, in a little church called Redeemer. And yet this morning, look at us, we're being blessed by her act. Her act of devotion is blessing us because it's challenging us and educating us and, 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 God willing, inspiring us. So, you know, thank you, Mary. And who knows who, which others might be blessed by acts of devotion to Jesus by you. Now, maybe after this, you'll sign up to serve on Redeemer Kids. And sometime next term, you will get to lead to Christ, the next Billy Graham. And then hundreds of thousands of people will be in the new creation for eternity because you signed up to serve on Redeemer Kids. Because as well as being acts of humility and perceptiveness and criticism and extravagance, devotion to Jesus also means acts that will have amazing pervasiveness. The smell's going to fill the house. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it. Or maybe better, for she intended to keep it. For the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Very quick note on verse 8. Not a proof text for us to be hard-hearted to the poor in the church. It can't be because Jesus' answer actually alludes to Deuteronomy 15.11, which commands us to look after the poor in God's people. And I see real acts of, uh, acts of real financial generosity happening between you guys. In this church family, it's one of the great privileges of being pastor. I have that bird's eye view, and I get to see probably lots more than any one of you is aware of. But there are acts of real financial generosity in, within this family. Long may that continue. No, Jesus' answer in verse 8 reflects the fact that his death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven are imminent. His disciples just don't have that much longer to be part of his earthly ministry, like Mary's being. Verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So, and this is amazing, get this. The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. As well as Jesus, that is. He's already on their hit list. Lazarus must have been number two. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The fascinating thing is that even as his enemies, they don't deny that he really did raise Lazarus. And even more than that, they basically admitted last week, chapter 11, verse 47, that he did. So for starters, their plan to halt Jesus' ministry is right up there, I think, with one of Baldrick's cunning plans. Uh, think about it. He raised Lazarus from the dead, which has meant lots of people are following him. So to combat that, I know, let's make Lazarus dead. That'll stuff him up because it's not as if he can raise people from the... Oh, wait. Now, one scholar writes this. The chief priests betray an astounding refusal to allow their beliefs to be changed by undeniable facts. 
They would rather destroy the evidence than change their minds. This is irrational behavior, but sin produces irrational behavior. And actually, Judas is exactly the same back in verse 6. Um, Judas has been following and living with and intimately getting to know a guy for three years who has again and again and again proved himself to be the divine son of God with a divine nature, able to do things like read people's thoughts, see into people's minds. So knowing that, Judas, for the sake of a few bob, thinks it's worth trying to pull the wool and embezzle. He's, he's like the baby at that developmental stage where they think because they can't see you, therefore you can't see them. A and Judas and the chief priests between them combine to give us our second and final picture here, which is in contrast to Mary's wholehearted devotion, which is one of hard-hearted betrayal. And, and I call this hard-hearted betrayal because of how incredibly irrational and dogmatic and entrenched and determined both examples of betrayal here, despite blindingly obvious evidence, despite amazing benefits and blessings available for those who, who admit the blindingly obvious about Jesus and respond accordingly. But that's exactly what sin does to a person. It is irrational. And whether it's caused by love of money, like with Judas's case, or love of status and power and, the and, and, and um, uh, sort of the institution, as with the chief priests, jealousy or something else, whatever it is, we've seen two different examples there, each of us will have our own signature sins, our own temptations that we're particularly personally prone to, that, that could lead us away from being devoted to Jesus to start betraying him instead, which if we were to let them have their ultimate way, would eventually lead us into the utter madness of ultimately betraying Jesus. We might think, well, well look at Judas, look at the chief priest, that is never going to be me. I'm, I'm on Mary's side. I'm, I'm devoted to Jesus. But, just remember what Peter is going to famously say in a few chapters' time at the Last Supper. Lord, I'll never deny you. And you might remember how well that complacent bravado turned out for him. And Judas, well, he was one of the twelve, one of the inner circle. He was an elite follower of Jesus. And the chief priests, well, for all the booing we might instinctively give them whenever they come on the scene in our minds, they were actually the most committed religious people in the nation. On an intellectual level, at least, they knew the scriptures, the Old Testament, better than any of us ever will. They were memorizing it from kids and never stopped their whole lives and, and devoted fanatically their entire waking moments to being in the Bible. They were, like I've said before, kind of the conservative evangelicals of their day on steroids. So let's, let's be humbled by these examples of betrayal against Jesus. And, and let's respond by, by praying, Lord, please not I before we despise and look down on these opponents of Jesus too quickly. Because I think these hard-hearted betrayals of Jesus by Judas and the chief priests are placed, uh, placed alongside Mary's example to us of wholehearted devotion are, are done like that to give us a contrast. They're done like that to, to show us a fork in the road, give us a choice, and to warn us and plead with us not to be mad and start edging down the betrayal route instead of the devotion route. So I just want to finish with uh, one final example to illustrate this. Because here is someone who also famously swapped being devoted to the person he should have been to betraying that person. Now, Thomas Carlyle, polymath, he was a genius. 
Um, he was a historian, writer, translator, philosopher, mathematician, among lots of other things. And for him, it wasn't money that drove him to, um, from devotion to betrayal, like Judas. It wasn't power and status that drove him from devotion to betrayal, like the chief priests. For him, it was work. Um, and, and I found the difference in these two pictures of him really interesting, because on the left is him as a young man, and, and look at the pride and the ambition and the focus and the determination, the confidence. And then on the right is a photo taken of him shortly before he died. And the only word that comes to me to describe that man on the right is broken. And here's what a later writer said about him. Carlyle had married his secretary, Jane Welsh. She was highly intelligent and attractive, and she continued to serve as Carlyle's secretary after their marriage. Sometime after their marriage, Jane became ill. Carlyle was deeply devoted to his work. He did not seem to notice his wife's ill health much. He was absorbed in what he was doing and allowed her to continue working, but she had cancer. Eventually, she was confined to her bed. Although Carlyle truly loved her, he found he just did not have much time to stay with her or much attention to give to her. After several years of this, Jane died. The day of the funeral was stormy. They carried her body to the churchyard for burial through the rain and mud. Carlyle later returned to a house that was suddenly, shatteringly empty. He went upstairs to Jane's room and sat in the chair next to her bed, the chair he had had so little time for. He noticed her diary lying on the table next to her bed. He picked it up and began to read. On one entire page, she had written a single line. Yesterday, he spent an hour with me, and it was like heaven. I love him so. A reality that he had somehow been too blind to see now revealed itself with crushing clarity. He had been too busy to notice how much he meant to Jane. He thought of all the times he'd been preoccupied with his work and simply failed to notice her. He had not seen her suffering. He had not seen her love. Thomas turned the page of Jane's diary. He read the words that would break his heart that he could never forget. I have listened all day to hear his steps in the hall, but now it is late, and I guess he will not come today. He read a little more in her book and then put it back on the table and ran out of the house. Friends finally found him back at the churchyard, kneeling in the earth at the side of the grave, covered with mud. His eyes were red from weeping. Tears were rolling down his face. If only I had known, if only I had known, he cried. After Jane's death, Carlyle made little attempt to write again. He lived another 15 years, but said he lived them, quote, weary, bored, and a lonely recluse. Now, I don't want to suffer eternal regret like Judas and the chief priests have already started to suffer. But I don't even want temporary regret on my deathbed for having gone through life missing the point and therefore missing out like Carlyle. And that's the tragic experience of some truly saved Christians. They'll be in heaven, but they had one short life in which to be fully, radically, extravagantly devoted to Jesus. With amazing amounts of joy and fulfillment available and uh, blessing to others available and, and amazing potential adventures they could have had. And they blew it. Uh, what a tragedy. Uh, for Mary, it looked like a, a jar of insanely expensive perfume and then smashing a couple of social taboos she did not give a rip about compared to being devoted to Jesus. So what's it going to look like for you and me? Let's have a few moments of silence. Maybe to look over the verses, look over our notes.
look over the points. And then I'll close in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for Mary's example. Lord, we have so much to learn from her. And Lord, for her it meant a jar of insanely valuable liquid and, and just smashing some social debris she did not give a fig about compared to just wanting to be devoted to your son. And, and Lord, I, I chucked out a few examples earlier, Lord, whether it's just having times of literal devotion to Jesus at the beginning of every day or, or, or using spiritual gifts and pursuing them or, or, or financial faithfulness or, or serving your people and redeeming babies and kids and tots. Lord, whatever it might be, please, with your Holy Spirit, convict us and show us and, and lovingly guide us and then encourage us and empower us to step out and be wildly extravagant in our devotion to your Son, who has won us eternity and with whom lies the, the source of all of the joy and fulfillment and hope we can ever have. Lord, help us to be warned, too, by the, the terrifying and unbelievably irrational examples of Judas and the chief priests. But, Lord, that's exactly what sin does. It blinds. It is irrational. And we pray that we, we wouldn't be complacent and proud like Peter later in this gospel. Lord, we, we pray that in obedience to what your scriptures say, we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Please would you keep every single one of us in this room. Keep us devoted to your son. And we pray it in his name. Amen.